0: Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Rena. Our text for this evening is from Hebrews chapter 6. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews is right after all the Pauline letters, right before 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Peter, James, just before all that. Our text will be Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. The word of the Lord says as follows. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Lord, thank you for this scripture. I thank you for this word. Would you bless the reading and the interpretation of this word tonight? Amen. Well, we have entered into some of the heaviest text in all of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 6. We know already from verse 3, And this we will do if God permits. Our author has a very high view of the sovereignty of God. You see that immediately. It doesn't happen unless God permits whatever it is to happen. High view of God's sovereignty. But he also has a very high view of man's responsibility. Is man completely responsible for his sin? The answer, of course, is yes. We are fully responsible for our own sin, but God is completely sovereign as well. This is a section on the paradox of God's complete sovereignty with man's responsibility for his sin. Both these things are true. The Bible explains both of them. How do we put this together? Well, first of all, if you look at verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who were once, and then he gives five things. So that the content will be the next five things, but if we cut that out and we just go right to the end of verse 5 there, it is impossible for certain people who have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. That's the thing that's impossible. What's impossible is some people experiencing certain things, falling away to ever come back to repentance again. Impossible. That's a strong word. Actually, this is the first of four times in this letter where we're going to see that word, impossible. This is the first time. The other one is actually just later in this chapter. If you go down to verse 18, you'll see impossible again. 618. Uh, Right before that, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Is that tough for you to understand or to accept? It's impossible for God to lie. We can accept that pretty easily, can't we? God is truth. Of course, it's impossible for God to lie. Now go on to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to get another instance of this. In chapter 10, verse 4, we actually uh, referenced this scripture earlier this morning, I believe. uh, Starting at 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you struggle to understand that at all? We all readily accept and believe that bulls, goats, calves, sheep, it can't permanently remove sin. It's impossible for it to. And then the last time is in chapter 11. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, and this is the classic, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. We agree with that, don't we? Without faith, we can't please God. It's impossible. So the other three times we have this term impossible in the letter to Hebrews, we don't struggle with accepting it. We, we know what it's saying. We accept the term for what it means. But here in chapter 6, feels different. That's tougher to accept. There are some people, it is impossible for them to be restored to repentance. And yet, if we're going to be faithful to the scriptures and the way that our author is using this term, we ought to be able to accept it the same way we accept it in the other three instances where there is an impossibility. So let's get into some hard words, and thankfully we get to end on some hopeful words. So as I was saying, it is impossible to restore certain people to repentance. Alright, who are those types of people? What we're going to get is a list of five items, and... That, that, that's important that there are five things, first of all. And let's see, especially if you've been in the Sunday school class of late, you might notice a certain structuring device in here. It is impossible in the case to have, one, once been enlightened, two, tasted the heavenly gift, three, shared in the Holy Spirit, four, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, five, the powers of the age to come. We have five items. And I'm going to suggest to you that in these five items, our author is setting up a mini chiasm. Now, a chiasm, if you remember, you will have a series of ideas that build, A, B, C, or I said one, two, three, and then it descends back to the beginning. So, A, B, C, B, A. The focus is on the C, that middle one that it's building towards. And that's the primary uh, part that the author wants us to get, the summary of the section, if you will. Now, how do we know that there is a chiasm here? There's a couple clues The first one that makes it pretty clear is when it said tasted the heavenly gift and then repeats that, tasted the goodness of the word of God. So that would be item B and then B prime. Or we might say D if you wanted it to keep on going. Those two things are essentially saying the same, uh, getting to the same idea. You're tasting something. And then 1 and 5, which is A and E, is the enlightening and the powers of the age to come. I will suggest that these, that's getting at the same thing. And we'll talk about that. So then what it's shining light on is the sharing of the Holy Spirit. And that's really the summary of all those five items. It's all about sharing in the Holy Spirit. So if we reduce this impossible statement a bit, it is impossible for those who have, sh- who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have fallen away to ever be restored to repentance. That'd be a, a condensed way to say it. But our author wants to point out these five things. First of all, those who have once been enlightened. Enlightened. There's another word within that word that gives us a big clue as, as to the meaning of it, which is light. When you are enlightened, you are enlightened by something that is shining light. What do you think about when you hear this idea of light? Well, I don't know about you, but I go to John chapter 1. We get an amazing description of the Son of God. And the Son of God in John chapter 1, he is described in verse, starting in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When you hear that this light is coming to the world, what you're meant to pick up on that is this Messiah was coming to save and have victory, not just over the Jews, but over the Gentiles as well. That's part of his mission. His mission was to bring together his covenant community, Jew and non-Jew, the world. That gives us a nice clue when we eventually get to John 3.16, for God so loved the world... It's not just you Jews that he loves. He loves the others too. And he's coming for victory over them as well. That was an enlightening thing for a Jew. So one who has been enlightened is one who has uh, acknowledged the Messiah, Christ, as the light. Acknowledging his mission for the world. You you have ascended to this idea that he is Messiah and he is saving the nations. He is saving the peoples of the world too, not just us Jews. So it's impossible in, in the case of one who has once been enlightened and then tasted the heavenly gift. What is tasting the heavenly gift? Well, we'll remember that Jesus, he was out he's being tempted by satan and satan's telling him to go turn things into stones into bread and he's he doesn't want to he doesn't want to taste that bread he says that we're going to live on the every word that comes out of the mouth of the lord is what we live off of and later on he's going to say that he is the bread from heaven he's manna from heaven and then not much later, he's going to go tell a big crowd, "Hey, you've got to start eating my flesh and drinking my blood, or you can't have eternal life. You've got to start eating me and drinking me." This idea of tasting God is a theme that goes throughout Christ's life, and of course, when he says, "You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood," he's looking forward to communion. He's looking forward to Lord's Supper, where he holds up the bread, this is my body, holds up the wine, this is my blood. Take this in remembrance of me. And so the people who are tasting the heavenly gift are those who are feeding on Christ. That's what we get in the Lord's Supper. It's sacrament. So we have the enlightenment of Christ as Messiah. Those who are taking the heavenly gift are being involved in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And then the central idea, have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now I've already said I think all five of these ideas go back to sharing in the Holy Spirit If you think of what is, what happens when the Holy Spirit is present. When he comes upon a person or he's in an atmosphere, what does he start doing? What's his role? What's the Holy Spirit's job? Well, what we learn from the New Testament, the Holy Spirit brings us confession of sin or conviction of sin. He gives us a sensitivity to our own sin. So this type of person is one who is enlightened to the Messiah, is one who is taking Lord's Supper. They've confessed their sin. The Holy Spirit also helps us bring brings remembrance of Christ. So we're going to remember Christ. We're going to talk about Christ. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit brings spiritual gifts, brings the fruit of the Spirit. These are all ways that you know the Holy Spirit is in somebody's heart. So this person, the one who it's impossible to ever restore them, they've had some type of confession of sin. They've pronounced faith. There there could be a spiritual gift showing up there. Maybe you see some of the fruit of the Spirit showing up for a time. This person is sharing in the Holy Spirit. And then fourthly, Have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. So I think that's a repetition of the idea before. Tasting the heavenly gift, just instead of sacrament, it's Word. Word and sacrament. Those are our means of grace, right? Word and sacrament. So this is going to focus on the Word. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And of course, that is the preached Word. They're hearing it. They are in our churches. They're hearing the Word of God preached. Not only that, but the, the fact that they are tasting it, that brings up that they themselves are, are, are knowing that it is sweet, that it is good. They are audibly acknowledging scripture. So this is a person who's acknowledged that the Christ is the Messiah. They are taking communion with us. They are showing some type of evidence that the Holy Spirit is with them. They are hearing the word of God weekly and they are audibly acknowledging the scriptures. And then five, the powers of the age to come. They're experiencing or sharing or tasting in the powers of the age to come. Now, I'll suggest right now this is not about end times, what he's talking about here. The the book of Hebrews was written prior, was written in the 60s, prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., Now, this is linked up with the idea number one because of the idea of God's expanding covenant with the Gentiles, with the world. What was the great power of the gospel? Of course, it's to forgive sins. We know that. But outside of that, what was Christ bringing that was new? Well, he was bringing in the world. He was bringing in the Gentiles. So when you are sharing or experiencing the powers of the age to come, They are in our communities already living in light of Jesus' mission that we are in one covenant body now. We're not looking at different different types of plans of God with other people. He's got his covenant people and we're together. It's acknowledging and living in light of Christ's mission, which was corresponding with the whole light idea. So they were already experiencing the fact that God was bringing this covenant community together, which, of course, after 70 AD then you no longer have the temple, you no longer have the sacrifices, you are just one body now, and there wasn't really a national way to not be. So these are the five things that this person, who cannot be restored, is experiencing in our community. They are sharing in the Holy Spirit with us. Now why is the focus really on number three? Again, I do think all of them come back to that, but You'll remember from the reading of Matthew 12 when the scriptures give this really tough warning, it only gives it a couple times and says it here it's impossible to restore these people and in Matthew 12 the unforgivable sin. What can you not what will not be forgiven for you? It's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus doesn't quite describe too much back in Matthew chapter 12. How do I blaspheme the Spirit? There's hints of it in there. Well, I suggest that our author here has described for us what it's like to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's one who is in our covenant community. It's one who acknowledges Christ, takes the sacraments with us, hears the word preached, is with us for a while, they're living in light of God's expanding mission, treating Jew and Gentile alike with grace and love. They show some spiritual gifts. They've confessed their sin. And they fall away and hold up Christ to contempt after. That's the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to restore those people. Why is it impossible? They've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It won't be forgiven. That's what our text says. Those who apostatize cannot be restored. Now, this is a long-term apostasy. I'll get into that in a minute. But these are people who have been exposed to the greatest light. The most light you can come to is somebody who is in our community like that over a period of time. And we know from the book of James that when he's talking in James 4 about those who go and trade into and this and this town, at the end of it, he says something along the lines of, For now to to know to go back is sin for you. It's like now you know you're accountable to it. The more light you are exposed to, the more you are accountable for it. That's why Jesus says to some people, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you. Because they actually had the Messiah in front of them. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't get that. The more light you are exposed to, the more liable you are to judgment, the more you are accountable for Now, there's an obvious connection as well to what John says in 1 John 2. You've certainly heard this before. In 1 John 2, the author is going to warn about antichrists. And in verse 18, he says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. So there are many. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us... But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. There are those in our community. It is sad. But there are those in our covenant community who share in the Holy Spirit with us, who leave us, and it shows that they were never actually truly inside of us. It's a hard thing, but we know it's true. We've seen it. Now, contextually, what is the big temptation back in Hebrews? What are they going to turn back to? After you are so enlightened and you're experiencing Christ and the Holy Spirit, what is there that is so tempting to go back to? Well, contextually, it's the Judaizers, uh, public enemy number one in that case, the Jews who are going around saying, okay, you had your fun spreading your Messiah, your Jesus idea, yeah, he's dead by the way and you don't have the finished work that we have in, the, in our, in our old, old Testament scriptures and you're not sacrificing animals anymore and you're not circumcising anymore, well, what assurance do you have of salvation? You've got to come back you had, your, you had your fun, you had your time but get back right with God again, the Judaizers Paul had to deal with the Judaizers. Peter had to deal with them. The first century church had to continuously deal with the threat of going back to Judaism rather than moving forward with our Messiah, the Christ. And I can see the temptation. If you are one who is intellectually minded and systematically minded, you want things to make sense, logically minded... Judaism was very highly established at the time. Christianity was still figuring itself out in the first century, getting everything together. There would be a temptation to go back to where you're more familiar, more comfortable. It's what you grew up in. So, contextually, Judaizing is a serious concern. And now we think of What he says after that, when they fall away, you can't restore them to repentance. They're crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. Wasn't the cross the first time contemptuous enough? Oh, you could not think of a more brutal and publicly shameful way to die. It really is a brutal death. It was contemptuous as it was. To then turn your back on him afterwards is complete mockery. It's re-holding him up to contempt is the idea. It's like a public, I'm going to put him back up on there is the imagery that's behind this is what you're doing when you fall away after you know the truth, after you've seen the light. You're just going to hold him up, put him on that cross again. He can go back. That's the level of contempt you have for your Savior. They can't be restored. It can't be forgiven. Especially when you consider the fact that Christ is victorious. What did he do on the cross? Defeated sin. Defeated death. When he was resurrected. He defeated the devil. And Satan's works. He is a victorious king. But you want to put him back up there? After you know that he's victorious, you're going to say he's defeated? It can't be restored. You can't Come back after that. This is a very serious falling away. This is not simply I'm backsliding, I'm falling into sin for a time, or I'm struggling for a time. It's not that. This is a serious falling away. And I'll say now, if you have any sensitivity to these things, oh, could I have possibly blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Could I possibly be holding him in contempt with the way I have lived? If you have any sensitivity to that, this is probably not the text that is referring directly to you. We'll get to that when we get to verse 9. But this is a very serious falling away that he is talking about. Now, have you ever heard the Quo Vadis legend? It's a story of Peter's death in Rome. It's a legend. Is it true? Maybe, maybe not. Church tradition has a lot of things like that in there. But the Quo Vadis legend tells of how during Nero's persecution, Peter was caught in Rome. And we do do know that he was executed in Rome. He's caught in Rome and his courage failed. Uh, He ran away down the Appian Way. He fled for his life. Suddenly there was a figure standing in his path. And that figure was Jesus himself. Domine said Peter, Quo Lord, where are you going? Jesus responded, I'm going back to Rome to be crucified again, this time in your stead. And Peter, shamed into heroism, turned back to Rome and died a martyr's death. I think there's a certain truth to the legend, even if it's not literally true. There's a certain truth there. Our author sees this cross as an event which opened a window into the heart of God. He saw it as showing a moment of time, this suffering love, which is forever in God's heart. The cross said to men, This is how I have always loved you, and this is the way I will always love you. This is what your sin does to me. And it's the only way I can ever redeem you. That's it. It opens up that suffering love of God, that event. And to turn your back on that after you know it, to hold them up in contempt, you cannot be restored. And then he's going to give a crop analogy with the land Seven. For land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now that metaphor is reminiscent of Isaiah, something that Isaiah says in chapter 5. And in Isaiah chapter 5, he's going to say something very similar. 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded Wild grapes, uh, not good grapes, not grapes for eating. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I shall break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I also will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, and outcry. This language comes back up here in Hebrews. And the people of the day would be very aware of land metaphors, earthy metaphors, farming metaphors. Christ used them a lot. In this type of metaphor, the land are people. The rain is blessing. The crops is our faithfulness. The cultivator is God. And the vine is Christ. Christ, of course, called himself a vine during another time in his life. Back in John chapter 15, he's going to call himself something that fits with our metaphor here. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. There it is, vine and cultivator of it. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine you are the branches. And he will go on to say down in verse 7 or in verse 6 if anyone does not abide in me he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. There's that idea coming up. Now (coughs) What Christ does for us, he plants us in his vineyard and he, through the Holy Spirit, helps us grow in godliness. He gives us the fruit of the Spirit, spiritual gifts. He gives us the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sin. And it's not meant to just stay like that. We're supposed to grow. Your crops are healthy if they are growing. And that's, that's our sanctification. We're supposed to grow in our sanctification and our holiness and our love for each other and our love for the Lord and how we obey His commandments. These are things we're supposed to grow in, not stay stagnant in. Those which are stagnant or those which are degrowing, those are good for being cut off, gathered up, and burned because they can't be restored. Once the, once the root is diseased, good for the fire. It's not good for anything good. These earthy metaphors are very biblically significant. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, we get this idea of what happened to the ground. Well, first of all, in Genesis 2, what are what's man made out of? Remember how God made us? Dust of the ground. He breathes the breath of life into that, he for, or forms it into a man, breathes into him, and we're alive. We come from the ground, the dirt. That's where we come from. We come from this earth. And then we fall into sin. And in Genesis three, he's going to give us some curses. And he says to the man, "Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground." Because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. There's that idea again. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. A sign of the curse is the cursed ground. And what's going to start coming out of this ground is not always good fruit and good vegetation. It's going to be thorns and thistles, things that you don't want. Unproductive things are going to come out of the ground. And then you have Jesus. And they put something on his head. They're going to put a crown on him. And what's this crown shaped in into? Thorns. He's literally wearing the symbol of the cursed ground, the curse of man, on his head. That's not a pointless detail. He's wearing the curse on his head. So when you know this, when he's taken away your approach and your curse, and then you fall back, you fall away, you hold that Savior to contempt, you're good for the original curse and worse. You're good to be burnt. That's what our author has in mind in verse 8. It born, it, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The point is that apostates are cursed beyond hope. They may be temporarily in union with us, but they desert us on earth, they desert Christ on earth, and they are rejected in the final day. And I, remember, I, I wonder how many of these Will get run out of a church, unrepentant sin, get disciplined by a church, or they just want to live a life of sin and keep switching the church that they go to and not let the new church know their background. And they'll find some church that accepts them and they'll feel comfortable in themselves. I think a lot of these types are going to be the ones who say on the last day, Lord, Lord, was I not in church every week for you? Lord, did I not join in a couple prayers? Apart from me, I didn't know you. I don't know you. Now, after some of the heaviest language in all of Scripture, doesn't our author sound somewhat relieved to move on from this? Once you get to verse nine, he's got a few tough verses. And then, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. It's was like, oh, okay, finally, I can move on. <laughs> I can get past this, get to the positive side. After using this language, our author moves to encouragement and to comfort. And the point here is that faithful Christians have nothing to fear. There's a lot to fear if you're an apostate, but faithful Christians have nothing to fear. This is the nature of discipline, by the way, ha- the way he has this set up. He's going to go hard. He's going to speak the truth to them. It's, that's discipline. He's going to tell them the way that it is, but then he's going to comfort them. and He's going to encourage them. It's like when you discipline a child. is You've got to be consistent, but then you bring comfort, and you bring love, and assurance, and encouragement. Our author is doing that. That's the nature of discipline. He, what he says here, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved One way we know that he is so ready to move on to this topic, that word beloved, that's the only time it shows up in Hebrews. The only time he uses it is after he uses this type of language. He's got a pastor's heart, a shepherd's heart, a heart that's been molded by Christ. And that's what he's now going to show to people who he just had to discipline a little bit. Though we speak in this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. One thing, you'll notice the title of this sermon even, is the assurance of eternal death and life. Assurance. Our author is not at all confused of the percentages of how this is going to play out. You have a 60% chance to make it. 80% chance Christ will approve you. No, it's not like that. You are assured of destruction or you are assured of salvation. He is so sure of the people he's writing to. In your case, I know you have better things. Things that pertain to salvation. I have no doubt in my mind. We're sure of it. Why is he so sure of this? Well, verse 10. God's not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in the serving in serving the saints as you still do. So why is he so sure of their salvation? Because of their good work. And because of their love. They are proving themselves over time. Christ had something to say. How will you know them? By their fruit. There's another one of those earthy metaphors coming back. Which is always so constant in scripture. You'll know by their fruit. Just watch for a time. How do they treat their family How do they treat their church family? Do they serve? Do they pray? Do they read their Bible? Do they volunteer? Do they lead? Just watch for a time. And perhaps the truest mark do they persevere? Do they stay with us? I don't just mean this one church. Do they stay in the faith? Do they keep to their enlightenment? Do they keep taking communion? Do they keep confessing their sin and taking on Christ and growing in the spiritual gifts? Do they keep on hearing the word of God preached and acknowledge its supremacy? And do they keep living in a way that we're all brothers and sisters together in the covenant community of faith? There's no divisions. There's no distinctions amongst us. Those five things, you will know. He's sure that his audience is doing this. And he is sure that they will be saved on the final day because of their productive and effective work and love. In the face of the temptation to Judaize, he assures them that God sees their faithfulness. Just as a reminder of that temptation, even Peter. Remember what Peter did that Paul had to oppose him to his face for? He's going to eat with Gentiles uh, one time. Oh, and then some of the Judaizers, the circumcision party, the Judaizers, they come. Oh, oh I can't eat with them. I'm going to stick with the Jews. And Paul says that you are a hypocrite to the gospel of grace. To what the mission of Christ is. You're denying it. You can't live that way. Even Peter felt the temptation to Judaize. To be inconsistent with the gospel. So now our author looks at these people and they're not being inconsistent. They are productive saints. They love. They work. They know the Lord. And because of that, he wants each of them. This is another thing I love. In verse 11, we desire each one of you. He's not talking corporately anymore. It's not just you in the plural or the the church. Each of you individually. Every one of you, I want to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He doesn't want to leave you in doubt. If you are a Christian who is abiding in the vine, productive in your love and works, he doesn't want you sitting there, Am I? Am I not? 60% I pleased Christ? No. He wants you to be eager in full assurance of hope until the end. This is one of the best things about Christianity. You don't have to wonder if God can save you. He can. And he did. And he does. It's it's been said by others that the time that a, a Muslim is most anxious is on their deathbed. They don't know if they did enough. Did I do enough good works for Allah? You could still do all the good works in the world. And on the last day, Allah could turn you away, according to Islamic theology. It's not like that in Christianity. You're assured of salvation if you are in him. 100%. Can't be taken out of his hand. What a gift we have. What a gift. So you'll persevere and hope until the end is what he wants at the end of 11 there. That's the truest mark of your salvation. That you'll persevere. You won't leave. You'll stay with us. You won't go out from us but then show that you're not of us. You'll be faithful to the end. I love seeing saints who are faithful for 60 years. They don't need to be rock stars. They don't need to be all these public figures. But just those older folk in the church who have been coming for decades and they love well and they serve well. That's what I want. I love that. That's encouraging. Your perseverance is your surest mark of salvation in terms of what we can see. Then he asks you to imitate. Imitate those of faith and those by patience inherit the promises. Yeah, we've got to be patient. We've got to live out these lives. And if you persevere, you're saved to the end. Now, in conclusion, when we examine a text like this, we can have fear over our souls. If you question your salvation or are wondering if you are an apostate or perhaps you're concerned about family members who may be, there's some questions we can ask about ourselves. Are you living in consistent, unrepentant sin? Has your church called you to account, but you refuse correction? Do you have contempt in your heart for the idea of Christ, the God-man suffering for you on the cross? Or maybe I can ask better questions. Do you sincerely believe in the Messiah and his victory? Have you confessed your sin and received forgiveness? Have you been baptized? Do you eat the Lord's Supper? Are you here and you love the word of God? Do you love your brothers and sisters and show it by good deeds? Beloved, I want you to be eagerly assured of salvation. The Lord be your comfort and you be faithful. Persevere, be faithful. The promises of God are yours to the end. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord, that... Though sometimes we need to be disciplined, you do it out of love. And you do it for our good. And you give us all the assurance and comfort and hope way more than we could ever deserve. You give us the right to be your children. You give us the right to overcome sin. What great gifts you have given us. I ask that you would give us perseverance until the end. Let us show ourselves by long lives of faithfulness and fruitfulness that we are your children, and we live to glorify you and enjoy you forever, that we'd be with you in paradise. In Christ's name, amen.